When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win $25,000. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to B-Ball Breakdown and the B-Ball Breakdown podcast as well. We have Chris Herring of the Wall Street Journal, the NBA writer who does have a bent of the, on, the, on the Knicks as well, uh, to come in and the pride of Chicago, another guard from Chicago to talk to, which is always nice. Uh, Chris, thanks for coming on the show. No problem at all, thank you for having me. So, you know, let's break right into it because obviously the Knicks are near and dear to my heart to some degree because I'm a triangle offense coach as well. Um... You know, is the triangle offense a four-letter word now in New York? <laughs> uh, depending on who you go to, some of the fans, uh, the media, I, I think we're pretty quick to judge things in New York. And so there are some people that are, are wondering how well it can work, if it's flawed, um, should they throw it out and just run something all together differently. Um, but no, I, th- I think most people realize, most, most people that are willing to give things a chance realize they need more talent for it to work the way it's supposed to work. Uh, I think what they're finding is that the different options that they want to make available on the offense aren't really there sometimes because defenses cheat. They, they basically will give the Knicks certain shots that really in an ideal situation would be like your third or your fourth option. And it's consistently becoming their first option. Jason Smith is taking way more shots than what I would want him to take because teams are just sagging off of him and letting him take those shots. Uh, from 17 to 18 feet. He's a decent shooter from there, but you can't, you're not necessarily going to win games by taking shots from there the whole game. And um, they don't have enough penetrators in the offense. So it's, it's clear it's not just the offense, but they, they need more talent. And next year will be a better judge of whether or not it works for this team. You know, I, I got into it a little bit with, uh, you know, Mark Cuban and then Harald Bob on Twitter, kind of were, you, were, you know, getting into it and arguing about the long twos because I was watching a lot of footage. And what I did was I isolated on just their misses. I want to see, okay, what are they? What kind of shots are they getting that they're missing? And i got to tell you, a lot of them were within the context of the offense, in rhythm, good shots that you really wouldn't argue with, and they freaked out because it's like they lead the league in, in long twos. And so then their conclusion, falsely, would be that the triangle offense is an archaic offense designed to get long twos. And so obviously my, my response to that is that it's not, that's the farthest thing from the truth. It's simply designed to get open shots. Right. Now – you hear them talk about long twos. They said, okay, they're, they're lambasting them so much on long twos, you would imagine they're, they're not shooting any threes, right? They're 30th in the three-point attempts per 36, or they're 28th. Well, when I looked it up a week ago, they were 21st, a lot closer to average than the end of the, uh, the line on three-point attempts. So the next question is, well, okay, you want to take more threes. Who 
are these players that you want to shoot threes? Travis Ware or like Quincy yeah. Casey? So like, how do are there any are there any secret Knicks players I don't know about that should be out there who can shoot threes at a much higher volume? Well, you know that that's what's interesting, and that was my issue for a while. But then after a while, you start to see that that's not exactly the problem. Uh, at, at one point, I think maybe three or four weeks into the season, I, I remember tweeting about it. The Knicks had the best or the second best three-point percentage in the league, but they were only taking the 20th most threes, and they were taking by far the most mid-range shots. They were decent from mid-range, too. They were like a top-five offense from mid-range, um, but they've slipped, and obviously they've gotten rid of some of the players that were decent three-point shooters. J.R. Smith is a fantastic spot-up shooter if he's open and if he's catching and shooting. Um, you get rid of him. You get rid of Iman Shumpert, who... For the majority of his career, he's not known as a good, a great shooter, but he's about league average from three-point range. You get rid of him. Jose Calderon not taking as many as he's used to taking and also not shooting quite as well as we're used to him shooting. Um, Carmelo Anthony is really the big difference. Last year shot above 40% from three for the first time in his career. This year is right around 30% for the whole season. So that's the guy that you, you kind of rely on to hit more of his shots than what he's done. And he's also been absent from the lineup for a lot of the time. So they really don't have guys at this point. So that's exactly what I'm saying. They're not necessarily bad shots within the offense, the mid-range shots, but they, they are open looks. And I remember asking Jason Smith, how do you go about determining when you're going to shoot or not? You're open most of the time. And he said, I've been told to shoot whenever I'm open. And so he's going to take 15 shots some games because teams are deciding to give him that, particularly when there's no Carmelo Anthony there. So that's that's kind of the problem, and that, that's where you see talent as an issue because you don't want Jason Smith to be your first or your second option just because he's open. I also think the, you know there's the numbers guys who I I, I am a numbers guy, and when I, I'm now getting in, into confrontations with them on a weekly basis about stuff. So their take on it is, of course, he'll, Jason Smith would be a better shooter from three if he would just back up from 18 feet to 24 feet. Because it's one more point, of course, his percentage will go down. But it doesn't work that way. And, you know, I want to ask any of these guys who are looking at those numbers, have you ever shot a pro three-pointer? Because to be able to take a shot with confidence in a game at game speed takes the kind of work that just doesn't happen like, oh, I'm just going to back up four or five feet and shoot this shot. Like, it, it, it's not, it will not be worth it. Like, whatever that percentage drop will be so profound. Um, and it's also not the kind of way you should run your team. I feel like as a coach, um, just sort of saying, hey, all hell breaks loose. We're just shooting threes, you know. So it's not exactly how you build a team. And my argument, again, was like you said, it doesn't matter what offense you'd run this year because these guys – are not going to to score very well no matter what you did and no matter how many threes you shot. By the way, speaking of Calderon, who's like, you know, a good three-point shooter, do you know what he averages uh, three-point attempts per game for his career? Where is he at? Three. Really? So he's never been. Last year he did more on a great team, like five. But he's never been a high-volume three-point shooter. Yeah. So it's like, it's weird, you know. But by the way, he would be absolutely perfect in the triangle if he could play John Paxson's role. But I'm watching him now. He's, like, trying to drive <laughs> and, like, kick out. It's it's not a good look. Yeah, that, that, that's the, the issue. I mean, it, it's funny because I've endorsed the idea of certain guys shooting more threes than what they're accustomed to or guys that have never shot them before. But they're, they're for particular reasons that I suggest those people. I, I'm not one of those people that thinks – Every guy should be taking them. Jason Smith is fantastic from 18 feet, but 
from the areas that he shoots from, which are basically the wings, the top of the key, that's not the corner. The no. corner is much different because it's a shorter distance from there. Mm -hmm. So there have been some guys that I've suggested that you don't do it mid-season. You don't try to do it over the course of the season. You take off-seasons to do that, and you probably focus on younger guys who don't have really built-in um, ideas and, uh, I guess, built-in kind of habits. And, and so what I said a couple of years ago, or maybe last year, a guy that I would have really worked with because they were struggling to find a role for him anyway – was Amari Stoudemire. Not because I think he needs to become a three-point shooter, but because I think it would have made way more sense to try to turn Amari into someone that can shoot threes than to trade for Andrea Bargnani, who can shoot threes, <laughs> doing it at 28%. You know, Amari had been, I think I, I ran a number, Amari was the best two-point shooter on twos that were from 20 feet and out over like a seven-year span. Um for, I can't remember, for maybe from like 07 to, uh, to 2013-14 or something like that. And so it's like it might be worth trying to see if you can stretch him out a little bit further, have him work from the corners. And in pregame, sometimes you see him working on that. So him, Quincy Acey is a guy that I think would work on it because he's he started to take some in games. He's made them. He's made his long twos at like a 45% clip, and he's 24. So he's a guy huh. – that I look at and I say to myself, maybe he should work on it. But not Jason Smith. He's older. He's shooting from the wrong parts of the floor to say, oh, all you have to do is back up six feet, and then you can shoot a three. It's not going to work like that. Right. And I, and I agree. I think that they're just looking at this and figuring out, okay, this guy fits, this guy doesn't. And I'm sure that's why, you know, I don't think anyone was surprised that J.R. Smith, A, didn't really fit into the triangle, and B, got traded because of it. I feel like, you know, that's not uh, – that, that was never really going to be a great fit. Kind of how, like, Deion Waiters – was never really going to fit in Cleveland with what they wanted to run. Ironically, Cleveland is not really running the Princeton-esque uh, Coach David Blatt's normal stuff. Um, and so, uh, so that, you know, I, I like to think as a coach that there could be improvement, there could be a way to get through to players to get them to play a different way. Um, but the bottom line is, like, when I see the people criticizing the triangle, it's like, okay, so you're criticizing an offense that's designed on selflessness and teamwork. Um, you know, I don't know why, why does, you know, that doesn't seem to be a real great way of, uh, a great basis to start off on criticizing something because clearly, you know, you know, that's, those are the things you should be, you know, lauding. Now, here's the one thing I might disagree with you a little, not completely, because I understand where it comes from and I understand JR is not the most selfless player. He's probably more selfish than he should be at times, but I do take issue, and I don't know if it was Phil. You know, I don't want to. I don't necessarily feel a need to point fingers, but I do think that there was this perception very, very early on that for whatever reason, if Phil was coaching the team, or even in this situation with Phil running the team, that Jr. cannot fit within the triangle. Then I get why there's that perception. I get that he takes shots that are bad. I get that he takes shots that are off balance. I get that sometimes he decides that he's going to break a play to run his own thing. Mm -hmm. None of which is, is conducive to the triangle. But I also look at someone that on this particular team was one of the few guys that could create his own shot, who could break down a defense a little bit, and even if he doesn't quite fit the triangle perfectly, led the team in assists per game until he was traded and had the highest assist percentage on the team. And so to me, with someone who also missed a lot of time because he was hurt with the plantar fasciitis, if he doesn't get the offense and can do those sorts of things without – understanding or without running it perfectly 
I actually think that they could have maybe took taken a little bit more time to figure out whether he could be a better fit. I mean, he's, he's, he's also an old dog trying to learn new tricks. He's not old, but he's about to turn 30. He's been in the league for 10 years. That's the other challenge with this is that the other guys and the other stars in this offense previously were so much younger than Carmelo and JR are now. But I, I do think JR was scapegoated a little bit because I, I do think if he was that selfish, it would be hard to lead the team and assist. I know he's handling the ball more than the other guys, but you know, he, he, he didn't do nearly as bad as I thought he did. And since he hadn't had behavioral problems this year that we knew about, I think that he was scapegoated a little bit unfairly with his trade. Hey, you know, there is an alternative universe where, right, he fits in perfectly to the triangle because I don't know if there's anybody better at shooting catch and shoot than he. His mechanics are beautiful. He's got probably one of the best shots in the league, and the only reason why the percentage is lower is because of the shot selection. So you're right. I, I feel like, you know, Phil or, or Derek Fisher, they could have put their arm around him and whispered in his ear and slowly could have teased it more out of him. Um, so so I'm not going to – yeah, right. I, I see it. I could see it. Well, he wasn't um, – he yeah. wasn't a second option. You know, he, could, he was not a good enough player to be a second option on a contending team. I think that was the biggest thing from the get-go is that he was miscast. Ever ever since Amari got hurt mm-hmm. that one season where they won the 54 games and JR ascended into that role, he was always miscast. And, and so when you're asking him to be your second-best player on offense even, it's it's a bad fit for that. But I think if the Knicks, you know, if they had actually used their cap space wisely this summer – and JR was still on the team because you couldn't find a taker for him. I think it could have worked, but um, I don't think he was a perfect fit for it, but I don't think he was a god-awful, terrible fit. I don't think he was the reason they were failing. Okay, yeah, no, there's, without question, there's all, the, the, long, the list is long. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, you know, I, and the other thing was is with Shumpert, uh, another really good player, and, and whatever, so suddenly I'm reading this notion of he's not like this elite defender. Um, is that related to primarily just the knee injury and never really coming back? Because I will say, when they played the Celtics in the playoffs, when Pierce was there, he literally just got up and put his chin to Pierce's belly, and Pierce couldn't do anything for like several long stretches throughout each one of those games. And I was like, A, Pierce is not a, can't play anymore, and B, here's a guy who can really play defense. So talk to me about, a little bit about what's going on with that. I remember, yeah. I mean, part of the issue with Shump, I, I I tried to, you know, he was such a difficult player to read. Um, I remember there was one year in there where he, just real odd splits that he had. Um, I remember there was one year where he shot way better when there was a guy in his face statistically than he did when he was wide open. And just seemed like he was thinking too much sometimes. I know this year that there was the one stat that I've seen that was like mind-blowing. Um, ESPN had a statistic that said that of the 200 players that have defended 200 or more plays this season. Um, Shumpert ranked 192nd out of the 200 players that had done that defensively in terms of points per play that he allowed. I was like, wow, that's really, really high. Now, obviously, not all those guys are perimeter defenders. Maybe they were just looking at perimeter defenders, but that's an eye-popping stat. I was wondering about the context of it. Is it, you know, is it because he plays for such a poor defensive team? Maybe it, it brings his numbers down more. But watching him... He was really poor defensively this season. I wrote about it a couple times, and the best thing that I could surmise for a while, other than disinterest, which I don't think that's what it was for a player that's going to be a free agent this summer, was that he might have been adjusting or trying to adjust to how much the Knicks were asking him to do on offense. Because keep in mind that um, 
Carmelo has, was missing time. There was no Calderon at the beginning of the season. Bargnani, for as much as I dislike his, his offensive game, um, he obviously was out as well. Stoudemire was missing a little bit of time here and there. Uh, there was no one there. JR was hurt. So Shumpert was their second option. And to be honest with you, for the first two weeks of the season, Shumpert was their best player because Carmelo was not shooting well at all. Um, he wasn't getting his normal point total. So Shumpert, on both sides of the ball, was probably their best player. And I remember running the numbers on it. Shumpert um, last year was handling the ball for barely a minute a game uh, in terms of how long he possessed the ball. The first three weeks of the season, it was three minutes a game he was handling the ball. Um, you know, an average of one dribble per time he touched it. Last season, an average of four dribbles. This season, um, four seconds per touch this season as opposed to one and a half seconds per touch last season. That's a major difference. And it, it was kind of, I mean, obviously, that can go one of two ways. You can kind of do what Jimmy Butler did this year, where he's just um, an assassin when Derrick Rose is out. Or you can kind of um, regress like um, Shump did. And eventually, Shump's numbers did come back down. And what also happened is that Chumper just looked a mess on defense. He couldn't stay in front of guys anymore. So I wondered, and I asked him this, and he got offended by the question, but I said, is it possible that just being asked to do so much more on offense hurts your defense because you're exerting more energy? That's why you don't see guys who are the top scorers on their team also defend the best player on the other side of the floor. That's why Paul George is such a rare talent. And um, he got really offended by the question and said, no, I just need to defend better. It's like, okay. But I, that was always what I thought part of it might be. Um, it's hard to tell. I'm not inside his head, but I, I honestly, watching him, that's kind of what I thought. I'm glad he got offended because what <laughs> happened to our the state of the NBA where it's okay where you don't have to exert a lot of uh, energy on defense if you have to score a lot. You know, coming from Chicago where you had Michael Jordan, you know, the, he played both ways. Defense and all players. those guys did. I mean, they certainly didn't, they didn't, you know, they might not have been good defenders, but it wasn't an effort thing generally. Uh, I had a numbers guy try and argue with me that, um, you know, they did some sort of study that showed that people get injured more often when they try as you know, harder on defense. And first of all, I want to say, well, how would you ever be able to measure if they're trying as hard as they can or not? Right. I've always learned it and coached you that if you don't try as hard as you can, that's when you get injured, when you're kind of you know, half-assing a little bit out there. So it's really frustrating, and if you can't give the 36, 37 minutes of both ways, then you should go down and play 33 minutes and give it all, or 32. Yep. You know that that's my argument there. And so I know you know athletes are more conditioned, the faster and the stronger, all this kind of stuff. But the bottom line is effort is effort, um, and I'm frustrated. I don't know why that became a thing where it's acceptable now. Yeah, no, I agree with you, and I that, that was probably my biggest problem. People always wondered why, especially there are some followers I have that are Knicks fans that think that I that I assume Shumpert is the best thing since sliced bread. And I don't say that, but what I did appreciate about him, at least up until this year, was that his effort was always there on both sides. You could tell that he was frustrated at times because his offense wasn't there, but he normally didn't let that impact his defense. I thought he was trying really hard all the time defensively, which was kind of the polar opposite from J.R., um, who is, is very um, aloof defensively, loses guys back door, um, often doesn't stay in front of guys. And, and Tim Hardaway, obviously being their other shooting guard, who, whether it's effort, whether it's awareness, or just the fact that he's a young player, the fact that he's got a really wiry frame for how tall he is, those guys just aren't good defenders. Shumpert had that ability, mm-hmm. and that was what I like to see, is that he at least gives you a chance to win because he's defending so well that on offense, even if he's not giving you a whole lot of offense, he's at least holding his guy down in terms of scoring performances. And so 
that was why I generally said I liked him most as their next option because Carmelo's going to score for you. Um, if you build the team the right way, I think you can build around a player like Shumpert because if he gives you offense, that's a plus because he's normally playing good defense. But I wonder how much of that changed this year because he, he really hasn't been that great. So I'm interested to see how he does in Cleveland once he's healthy. Oh, yeah. And you're already starting to see J.R. Smith, you know, sort of there are moments where he's just the catch-and-shoot guy. He's the fourth-best player in that team or third, and it looks really good. Then he still takes some of those bad shots, and his percentage <laughs> is low. But I think it'll be a win for the Cleveland without question. And I think that that – I had tweeted it out like 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 maybe, like maybe more in the right after the trade that there is some alternate universe where Cleveland gets to the finals. And I, we might be starting to see that now as the ship starts to get a bit more right. And then and, and as soon as Shumpert comes back and starts playing. Uh, speaking of playing, what's the story with um, Carmelo? Is he, are they, are they going to shut him down? Is he playing? What's going on? You know, I, I, I've said for a while I think they're going to shut him down at some point or that he's going to make the decision to shut it down. Um, but, I, I, you know, just having watched him uh, against Philly, and watching him interact, I mean, watching him jaw with guys in the crowd and people sitting courtside and watching the emotion on his face, I, I started to wonder for the first time, maybe he doesn't shut it down, which I think personally is the worst thing he could do to play out the season. They're, they're not going to make the playoffs. Playing and playing well might not be in their best interest long term either because you don't want to play yourself out of a position where you could get the top pick. Um, so... I, I think he's going to shut it down some point after the All-Star game. But I do wonder that he might just simply love playing too much to really shut it down, even though that's clearly, from a long-term standpoint, what would be best just to make sure he's ready for next season and then he goes into next season fully healthy. You know, again, old school, it's like these people are paying – money for their tickets to go see these games they don't want to see kobe not playing they don't want to see carmelo shut down either and that's sort of kind of been uh separated from the conversation as well where you know like with the spurs you love what they do right and they love how they manage their minutes and they get these guys rest but you know these games are really expensive and you know a guy to take his you know three two kids and his wife to go see a game and he wants to show him tim duncan you know this great player and tim duncan doesn't play that night you know yeah. what I mean? It's that that's that's gone off the window. I feel like we don't even you know th- that's not even an issue anymore. Yeah, it's important. I mean, it's important to him. Uh, it seems like I mean, and he, he you know it's it's something that we can't necessarily relate with. I think we in the media know he should sit out. I think Phil ideally would like for him to sit out. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, up until a couple games ago, there was a real thought that the Knicks could compete for the worst record of all time in an eighty-two game season, which. It's kind of unthinkable mm-hmm. when you have a player of Carmelo's caliber, at least on the offensive side of the ball. But that's how bad they were. I mean, they were on pace for 72 losses. The record is 73. Um, Carmelo basically said, look, I don't want to abandon my teammates like that. Um, it's hard to watch them go out there and know that I can't help them. I signed up for this. I signed up for a five-year deal. And talking to him privately once or twice, he said, this is what came with my deal. I knew that we weren't going to be a particularly good team the first year. But I signed up for this. I don't want to be seen as if I'm abandoning abandoning these guys. And so that's respectable. I mean, I think it's funny. I think uh, Reggie Miller, I think, called him selfish the other night during a telecast, which, you know, I get where he's coming from, but it's probably the wrong word to use because I don't think I don't think he's playing for his own numbers. You could argue that he really wants to play in the All-Star game because it's at the Garden. That's oh, the one wow. thing about it that I think maybe I don't necessarily even know if that's selfish. I just think he really wants to do it. Uh, because, you know, it, it's a New York game. It's at his home arena. 
Um, so maybe it is a little selfish, but I, I, you know, when you're talking about playing, and if he plays after the All Star break and continues to play after that, and he's doing it so that he can play with his teammates and not see them suffer, I don't, I don't see how you can call it selfish. It might be a poor decision for the long term, but I don't necessarily think it's selfish. Well, speaking of having conversations with players and being, you know, part of the media, I'm curious. Uh, did you get a chance to see what Russell Westbrook was doing with the whole execution uh, <laughs> interview the other night? Yeah, that was that was pretty incredible. Why uh, do you ask? Yeah, I mean, you know, because I have a Russ thing, as as you may or may not be aware, where I tend to be pretty rough on him. Uh, although it's sort of morphing into sort of Scott Brooks, we can't quite figure that out. But I'm just kind of curious, you know, what were your what was your take on that? I mean, you probably deal with that kind of stuff all the time, or maybe you don't. Um, you know, what what was your take on that? Yeah, I mean, that was was weird to me. I, I for like five different reasons, I was debating people about this on Twitter yesterday because uh, obviously as a reporter I have a, a, a standpoint on this or a stance on this um, it, it would be different if he always did that but there was a part of me that felt like you know he recently started doing it obviously Marshawn Lynch has gotten a lot of attention for doing it in the NFL um, you know I, don't, I, I hate the NFL I want it to end today but I don't <laughs> know who what Marshawn Lynch said or did uh, can you is there any way in like one sentence to just tell me what that was he was doing the same thing he was asked and there's, there's the meme that's going around that says thanks for asking at oh. any time anyone asked him a question he got fined he got upset about it about the fact that the NFL fined him because it's in their contract that they have to speak after games he walked out one weekend after a game instead of talking so the NFL fined him and then in the week after that and every week following that he came back and just said thanks for asking um that was his answer for everything so he didn't even really answer the questions but he would acknowledge them for asking and then not say anything thanks for asking so russell lately has done this good execution thing and my impression was that you know he's never been great at answering questions he's never been really elaborate in terms of explaining strategy we get that but this was recent this is just a recent thing where it seems like he noticed that that worked for marshawn lynch and for whatever reason decided not to talk. But my problem with it is that, I mean, I give him, it's hard to give someone credit for doing that. What I will say is that it was nice to see that he didn't necessarily do it because it was a game they lost or that it was a game that Russ played poorly in. I think that was the night that he went for 15, 17, and 17, which was like an amazing sort of game. So at least he's not doing it because of sour grapes or the fact they lost. But what bothered me about it was that um, someone said, why are you doing this? Are you upset with something? Barry Trammell from the Oklahoman asked him that. And he said, no, I just don't like you. And he was like, you don't like me? He said, no, I don't. And then he said, well, if you don't like me and that's why you're not answering my questions like that, why did you do the exact same thing to this reporter over here? And he said, Nick, because Nick Gallo, is the, he works for the team. You know, <laughs> all these teams have their own, their own online reporters that write game stories and mm-hmm. write feature stories about them. I actually used to work with Nick in, in a way. He was on the PR staff for the Jets when I covered the New York Jets in football. Really nice guy, really young, and like went to London with uh, KD and, and Russ to kind of chronicle what they were doing in the Olympics. So he's friends with them. And so it was like the reporter was completely right to ask that question. He said, if, if you love Nick the way that Russ said, no, I love Nick, I just don't like you. He said, if you love Nick, why would you give him the same sort of uninterested response when he asks you a basic question about the game like why are you you're, you're hurting everybody not just me who you don't like so that that's where I, I i kind of come in and i just think to myself i don't get why he would do that I, I don't particularly care i don't cover that team regularly but it just seems kind of weird to me um 
you know, and the other thing that having read the column that that reporter wrote, he um, he's basically written really glowing things about Russ before where you were saying you've been kind of tough on Russ. This guy has been like Russ's biggest defender in Oklahoma City. Um, he was also the guy that wrote the column that they headlined Mr. Unreliable about KD. And so I know there are fans in Oklahoma City that don't like him. There are fans that don't realize that reporters are not the ones that write headlines because the column was actually relatively fair. The headline was a little out there. But who, who knows? I'm not sure. that The columnist noted that he, uh, he basically said that Scott Brooks was on the hot seat this year if they don't accomplish something. And he said maybe that's why Russ was mad. But regardless of what it is, I think it's, it's, it'd be nice to see these guys carry themselves more professionally as opposed to that. Marshawn Lynch, if he's got an anxiety issue, fine. But Russell Westbrook is one of the most outgoing people there is when you look at the way he dresses, the way he's demonstrative on the court. Um, he might be an angry person, but to say that I just don't like you and that's why I'm not going to answer anyone's question, I, I think he could have handled that a little bit more professionally, and especially when the next night he goes on um, – NBA TV and then does this interview where he's smiley and laughing. I mean, I just right. think it looked it looked bad that you could do that, but not talk to the people right. in your own market. Well, obviously they forced him to do that, or, or, or really made him do yep. that, and he and he came off well. Well, first of all, Ernie was awesome because he set him up real nice, <laughs> um, and and that's how you should do it. Um, I, I feel like yeah, that doesn't come out of a vacuum. That kind of anger after a game, especially when you had a triple double and you guys it was a yeah. big game that you won. So. Um, yeah, there, there, that, that's the issue I have with Russell, and I, I almost feel like I don't want to get too much into it because I, that's all we talk about these days over at B-Ball Breakdown. And, uh, um, but there's, there, must be, there must be something kind of draining to, toward being around that kind of energy uh, all the time, I would imagine, because it is, he, just, he just seems to see uh, often on the court, and there we saw off the court, um, in a way that, uh, I don't know, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. But let's, let's pivot to another Eastern Conference uh, team here. Uh, let's talk about the Bulls a little bit because they've been struggling. And um, you know, do you have? You know, I'm sure you have something that no one else knows that you heard through you know somebody that you're going to now break on B-Ball Breakdowns podcast. So what do you what do you know? I don't know about that, but I, <laughs> the thing that just jumps out at you watching them is just they they're not the defensive team they used to be, which is scary because that's kind of what they hung their hat on. I mean, and being from Chicago. Watching them occasionally, probably more than the average team that I watch on League Pass and stuff, and watching you know my hometown Bears, it's so weird that these teams kind of always hung their hat on defense, and now the Bears were horrendous on defense in football this year, and um, the Bulls they're not horrendous, but they're just they're they're so far below standard for what they normally do, especially under Tom Thibodeau. So I mean the the, the clearest thing that you notice is that you know a lot of uh, the the really Really passionate fans will tell you that Butler has not been quite as good on defense this year. Maybe because of the same stuff we we're talking about with Shumpert, where he's doing so much on offense. But Pau Gasol is playing way more minutes than what I think anyone imagined he would. I think he's up around 35 or 36, which he's what 34 years old or something. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not a great defender. He's someone that can really pad the stat sheet with blocks. But um, you know they've really, really skewered him in the pick and roll. And Noah hasn't looked 100% either. And so when you're missing all those guys or you've got those guys at less than 100% or if you've got them at, at a place where they're fatigued, where Gasol is playing those many minutes, you know, they, the only defender they've got in there in the post that's really, really good is Tosh. And, um, you know, he, he can't do it all by himself. And so it's, it's, it's been a real problem for them this year, defense. They've been really fun to watch on offense at times, but they've gone cold lately on 
on that end of the floor, and they just don't have the defense to hold them up the way they used to. So that's what I see as the problem. Absolutely, and we broke it down recently, and I was pretty brutal on Powell, and I had been seeing it even in the preseason where I had said on Twitter that, you know, Coach Thibodeau is going to murder him in his sleep the way he gets beat over the top, and everyone was crowing about always blocking shots, and I said, well, that's nice because he's long, but there's there, there's what doesn't get measured is how many times he's getting beat, he's giving up offensive rebounds, uh, Taj Gibson is a terrific def- uh, defender on on his man, but he certainly yeah. isn't the kind of rim protector that like Noah is. Simply because I know he's got long arms, but he isn't as tall. Uh, what I've been seeing recently is he kind of gets gets there, but he doesn't have enough of an, an impact on that shot to affect it to miss like Noah can, and Powell yeah. certainly doesn't do that either. So I, I would argue that uh, my hot take is that Noah, a healthy Noah, is infinitely more important than Derrick Rose to this team. He might be. I mean, honestly, if we're just talking about the uh, I mean, I think for playoffs, you probably need both. I mean, you're probably not going too far without either guy. But but regular season, speaking regular season, um, you could argue that. I mean, they won. How many games have they won when Rose isn't there? I know they won 62 that year. He won the MVP. Mm-hmm. They won. Um, they, they won something like 60 or almost 60 the next year that he missed. Um after at least on pace, I know they were the number one seed in the East the year he missed like half the season with the ACL, and then the complete season that he missed, they still won forty some games. And so I think, in terms of that sort of thing, just winning regular season games, their defense, even without any sort of offense to speak of, their defense was actually good enough to win them forty games. Right. Uh, and I think that you know the fact that they're on pace for whatever it is, fifty or maybe a little bit above fifty this year, I mean it's good. But I think we were expecting more, especially with the way they started, because we just figured, wow, this team has finally learned how to score. Nobody's going to be able to beat them. And, and what we're seeing is that they sacrificed quite a bit on the defensive end, obviously with Noah's injury or, mm-hmm. or it, maybe even it's not injury, but just not being 100 percent after the surgery that, that I think he had in the offseason. Um, they've lost something. It, it seems like whatever they added on offense is what they kind of gave up on defense. Yeah, and that's why my argument would be like that's why Noah is the the key here because with Butler's improved offense and with Paul Gasol much better, they don't need Derrick Rose's offense nearly as much as they did in the in the yeah. previous years. So if they can get their defense anywhere near you know what they had before, then they have something and it's exciting. But um, you know it, it seems like a stretch to imagine the Bulls and the Cavs playing in the conference finals. Yeah, I, I mean, even the, I mean, between those two teams, obviously we still got to see if Cleveland's uh, pieces fit perfectly the way that they've started to kind of gel and look at Shumpert back soon. Um, the Cavs are, you know, they, they've got LeBron, and so you feel like they've always got a shot. But the Bulls, I really haven't liked what I've seen from them lately. I, like, like we both said, they're not completely healthy. Um, the other guy that they're missing that is a really important piece, I think, is Dunleavy. Um, just because he's one of the few guys they have that can really shoot it. Uh, McDermott has not been there, so they haven't really had his shooting. Miritich has gone really cold shooting it. But Dunleavy is, is probably a better defender than what he gets credit for. He's just kind of a glue guy, mm-hmm. and he helps space the floor, so he's important. But I really haven't liked what I've seen from the Bulls, particularly when they're playing against teams that have bigs that can shoot a little bit. So they, they get skewered by Al Horford because, uh, like you said, over the top, Powell doesn't even really come out to contest. He's too slow to do it. Mm-hmm. And doesn't want to get beat at the rim, so he's not even out there. Um, Washington, Nene can shoot a little bit, um, so they're just kind of a mess when they have to guard these guys that have bigs that can step out outside of twelve feet, and um, that's going to be a big question. And I think at some point um, it's going to be difficult because you know Powell has always made this big fuss before 
over when he's on the floor. Maybe that's why he's playing. Maybe he wants to play this many minutes. I don't know. Um, but, you know, there, there was always that thing where Taj would come in in the fourth quarter um, rather than Boozer, and it was kind of a set thing for the majority of the time. But with the way that the Bulls constantly seem to be playing from behind now, would you go with Taj at the end of games when you need to score points to make up for how far behind you've fallen? And if you do that, how do you stay in games when you need to put Powell on the floor and he can't guard these guys? Yeah, and they also know, know that Powell, um, he's not fragile, but he certainly would take it personal, um, as, as we've seen in L.A., uh, being benched like that. And so, uh, you know, that's another thing that coaches need to deal with uh, uh, you know, on a nightly oh. basis. Um, like we were talking about earlier, uh, do you have a who's your dark horse in the Eastern Conference? I don't even. Uh, the, the worst part is that I, it's hard to even have the dark horse with the way that Atlanta's playing. I mean, I guess they would have been a they would have been an accurate preseason dark horse because I don't think anybody had them finishing first in the East. But they're run, they're they're not running away. But I mean, they're doing as much as they could to run away. Um, you know, you figure all it takes for them is a serious injury to somebody and it might throw them off as well. That's kind of what we saw last year. They weren't ever the best team in the East, but they were second or third for a long time behind the Pacers and the, the, uh, the Heat. And you remember Horford getting hurt and they just, they almost fell completely out of the race. They barely hung on to finish eighth in front of the Knicks, but losing him really hurt. And, um, so he's really important to what they do. But in terms of dark horses, I mean, maybe, you give Toronto the benefit of the doubt. They hung in there a little bit while DeRozan was out. Um, but, you know, I, I would say it's hard to really pick a dark horse because the Bulls and the Cavs were the teams that everyone thought would get there. And now they're, what, fourth or fifth or fifth and sixth in the East? Mm-hmm. And so, theoretically, this, the number six team or somewhere in that area is who you pick as a dark horse. Those were the favorites to begin with. And really, what you've got now are, you know, three teams in between there. Um, with the Wizards and Toronto and, you know, but really Atlanta looks so much better than everyone else. I don't think Brooklyn has any chance. I don't, Detroit, as good as they're playing, I don't think they have any chance of winning the East. Um, I don't really have a dark horse. All these teams are teams that either should be there because of the way Atlanta's playing right now or with the Bulls and um, the Cavs are teams that we thought would be there. So it's a weird year where I don't even know if there is a dark horse. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it is a weird year for sure. Atlanta, uh, again, it's such a pleasure to watch. The Spurs yeah. East, whatever you want to call them, um, they, they're actually transcended a lot of what the Spurs do. And I interviewed uh, Coach Budenholzer last week, uh, and I, and I kind of told him, I said, you know, you're running the triangle offense, and you've, you've brilliantly disguised it with a little motion to begin with, and no one knows any different. And so there's an example, by the way, of a lot of the triangle principles being run for threes and for motion. But obviously they have a guy like Jeff Teague, and they have, you know, very skilled players that, you know, the Knicks don't have. And that's, you know, any offense. The, the argument used to be, oh, you need really good, you know, good ball handling guards from the triangle. Like, okay, what offense can you run that doesn't have good ball handling guards, right? Uh, all that kind of stuff really funny. But um, let me ask you about um, the next question was going to be Detroit. So what? What you know? Josh Smith got cut, and they went on this crazy run. They're 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 thirteen and two, or whatever they are. They won out of their fifteen games. They've won like twelve, twelve and three, I think. Uh, everyone's playing better. Brandon Jennings. It's hard to imagine that it's just a fluke now because he's continued to shoot forty percent from three, and he's taking better decisions. What's that? He had 20 assists last night. Oh yeah, we broke that down earlier this morning. And, yeah. and but he not only that, some of his scores. 
he passes to Monroe and then cuts to the basket and then they give it right back to him and boom it's like he's playing <laughs> basketball and I don't know I I was I worked I was a basketball manager at Wisconsin when 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 um, Stan Van Gundy was the assistant so I spent two years with the guy right uh, to some degree. And he's a great coach, but I don't know if we could say, you know, in in the short time he's had with them, if this is all his effect. Um, what were your, what is your feelings on the whole notion of Josh Smith getting cut? And you know, obviously they got a lot of criticism for doing that on a business sense, and I, understandable. But what 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 did your take on that? And what were you hearing around the league about it? Well, you know, it's funny. I didn't have a, a, a visceral reaction. My, my my first reaction I saw was, wow, you know that. Obviously, Stan wasn't part of the regime that uh, brought Josh Smith in, and obviously he was given kind of the GM duties along with that job. But I was still blown away that they made the decision to do it. I mean, it's just I just can't remember guys being cut without there being some sort of legal issue, um, you know, Aaron Hernandez type stuff in the NFL, without there being something to precipitate that as to why they cut a guy. But with that much money left on his deal, you know, it didn't look terrible to me. Um, Josh Smith was having a really, really bad season. Uh, I remember watching game in Detroit that the Knicks were playing against them where he was just missing point-blank shots where guys aren't even there. And um, obviously the jump shooting and his defense has not been up to his own standards, I think he would even tell you. Or at least in Detroit it wasn't. And maybe it was just because of the atmosphere there. But it wasn't as bad a financial step as what you think, especially if you're staying where you don't have any horse in that race because you didn't bring him in. The fact that you can use the stretch provision on his deal so that you're not getting hit with what was it, 13 million or 14 million on his deal, so that you don't get hit with it all at once, um, mm -hmm. and that you can still continue to spend a little bit as you need to for the next few years. But um, around the league, I mean, my first question was, are other teams going to do this sort of thing now? Because especially now, after saying, you know, if you feel like you have a cancer of sorts, not to say that Josh Smith is some terrible person, but just someone that you can't win with if you, because you can't bench a guy that makes that much money. Why don't you just cut him? And I, I don't think that it's quite reached that level for other teams. I think this was such a unique sort of thing, um, partially because of the change in management. The fact that Stan could come in and say, I didn't sign him, so I, I have no, no qualms about cutting him. But it's rare. They're, they're still relatively rare that coaches get that much power. Um, I guess Doc has that, and in my opinion, hasn't used it wisely. Um, you know, so it's still rare to see. I don't think we'll see it become a, a trend necessarily. Um, you know, the, a lot of people wanted the Knicks to do that with Amari, and a lot of people wanted them to do that with Andrea Bargnani. It's just not realistic to cut guys that are making almost twenty million a year. So, um, but it's obviously helped them. I mean, I, you know, it'd be hard maybe for the first four or five games, but then I think the sixth game they won was against the Spurs. They're not at full strength, well. but they're still a very good team. You could you could only deny it for so long. Right. And when you look at where their shots have come from, the fact that they're not getting bogged down by someone shooting 18% from mid-range or whatever it is, it really helps. And uh, they've looked a hundred times better than what they looked before. Yeah, and from what I've heard, you know, from the guy that knows the guy who's, you know, around – uh, it was as bad as you might think, uh, and that was that was their recourse because 
Yeah, it was just he was really just not part of the team, uh, even though he was part of the team. And, uh, you know, uh, I've seen it all the time on my level where we'd have a player who is, you know, talented and we, we figure we can get through to him or whatever. But whenever we've cut that player, the team just takes off. I've seen it all the time. So, of course, I'm nodding my head. Certainly the business issue is an issue because having that extra $5 million to sign, you know, you know uh, nice. somebody is nice. The cap does go up soon, so that also mitigates that a little bit. Um, but you know, from a from a, as far as the coach of the year voting, <laughs> I think Van Gundy should should win it, uh, and he might be the worst executive of the year, but be the best coach because of it. And uh, if you're trying to establish a culture, I mean, there, there's no better way than to make that statement because you know what, he could have he could have kicked Josh Smith in the butt out the door or let the door hit him on the way out, and then the next uh, person he looked at was Brandon Jennings, and he would have been like, "You're next if you don't listen to what we're doing." Now, I don't know if he did that. I don't know. Maybe he put his arm around him instead. But something happened there where Brandon Jennings suddenly snapped to, to, to uh, attention as well. Um, and if that's the case, then, there, then there's some real value to what they did. Yeah. Um, you know, even if it's only going to get them uh, eighth or seventh seed, which they're, I think we're projecting them to get the seventh seed now. They, they're playing really good basketball. I mean, especially when you look at the, the teams that they've kind of got a pass to get there. I'd much prefer to watch Detroit all of a sudden instead of watching Brooklyn. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's no question. You know, the Pacers are painful to watch. And I feel bad for them because I feel like so quickly they were in the limelight and now people have forgotten how good they were. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't a perfect team, but they were the team that had the best shot of taking down the heat. Um, it's crazy how things just crumbled so quickly. You lose Lance, even though you're essentially offering Lance the same contract. Um, Paul George's injury... Uh, George Hill has missed, I think, all but five games this year. So it's crazy to see how quickly things have crumbled with them. But I frankly don't want to watch them in the playoffs. I, I, it's weird. I sat and was watching like a whole, Indi- uh, not Indiana, Atlanta-Detroit game the other day. And I tweeted about it. I said, when's the last time you saw a game between these two teams that actually felt like it had playoff implications of some sort? But it's great to see. I, Detroit has been down for a while now, and it's really great to see. Oh, yeah. Basketball. And that was a game where Contavious Caldwell Pope just started shooting threes, and they were down yeah. by a lot, and then they ended up kind of coming back. Again, there's there's motion, and the ball is moving, and it's just it's it is exciting. It's that's I don't know the last time we saw a, a Pistons team that was like exciting to watch. Uh, they're doing. And by the way, uh, so here's the other thing: is Jody Meeks came back. Everyone just wants to overlook that. He sold me in L.A. last year. He he's a legitimate starting two guard in the league, and people were you know people are crazy on Twitter. And I get it all the time, and I think I've ended up, you know, showing or being right where, you know, after enough times of him knocking down shots and then driving to the basket and then playing some defense with the Lakers, I'm like, this isn't the fluke. This guy is legit. And then he got a decent contract, not a huge one, and people were freaking out. What's Sam Van Gundy doing? And I said, well, look, what is the average salary of a two guard in the league? And that was about where he was, and maybe a little bit more. And I said, that's about right. He's probably the 12th or 14th best shooting guard in the league. Uh, and he's really, I mean, the way he shoots it, he really has made a big impact as well. I think people overlook that. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly with Meeks, what it was when people reacted to his contract, I think he was like the first free agent signing of the summer. Maybe not the very first one, but he was like the first rotation like slash starting player to get a deal. Mm-hmm. And so when people saw that, you know, what, what the difference between the average fan and Stan Van Gundy in that situation, Stan has been told and is in league circles and knows 
the money is going to change completely two years from now. Mm -hmm. So whatever, I, I can't remember what what did he make on his deal? Was it was it nine million? Oh, for this no. one, I will I will tell you right now. Jordan Hill, uh, Jordan Hill, I think got the nine million a year, whatever it was. But he got he got something. It was it, it sounded high, but you know we're we're all thinking about it in the context of last year's salary cap. Whereas Stan Van Gundy knows that the money is going to be a lot bigger and a lot deeper two years from now. So it's mm -hmm. not going to, and again, you know, the, the money changes that much, the deal's not going to hurt you as much and you're paying for what you think someone will be and what they're worth. So oh, um, listen to this. Are you ready? Because I got it up, uh, pulled up right here. Uh, if he continues right now, his, his per game is 12.2 points. He's shooting, you know, 38% from three. Um, he's making 6 million. Six million, right? Yeah, and he's playing twenty-five minutes a game. That's going to be a bargain. Yeah, that's and see, that's I, I think when I said nine, I was thinking about Jordan Hill because he yeah. was another guy that people did the same thing with. And I think what we've seen, bigs, people really freak out when bigs make money, but they're bigs. They're, they're rare. They're very rare to have. Skilled bigs are rare to have, and guys that can shoot in this league, you cannot win games unless you were an elite defensive team. You really can't win games if you can't shoot and. The Pistons really can't shoot if you take him out of that lineup. Um, but, yeah, it's been nice to see because I think a lot of us were doubting Stan Van Gundy. We all know how good a coach he is, but that's why we were all so surprised to see how much they were struggling. But what it took was him finally un unjamming that log jam that they had with the three, basically with three bigs and getting probably their best shooter back into the lineup, and it's, it's worked wonders. Who would you rather have, Jody Meeks or Lance Stevenson? Ooh, well, if we're talking about the chemistry issues, I mean, so we have a team in Charlotte that is in the playoff race all of a sudden after that terrible start, and they still are trying to shop Lance Stevenson. I, I think maybe I saw a report that said that they'd like to try to make it work, but you still quietly hear that they're shopping him around. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they are months into a, a, a three-year deal that they just signed with the guy and that he's you know theoretically a useful player that would help you make a playoff push and that they're still trying to deal him for something else, I think it tells you that I, I'd probably take Jody Meeks between the, you know, the length of his contract and also the fact that um, that Lance, you know, he just got signed somewhere and the team is already looking to unload him, and that there were people within the Pacers organization they were one of the teams interested in trading back for him, and there were people either players or people within the organization said we, we, we're all right, we we don't need him back, and that tells you a lot. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I was trying to tell people last year that this guy is erratic. He's all over the place. As a coaching standpoint, that's what you don't want. You want people who are consistent and you know what you're going to get. And then you throw on the part that he gets in the fights of the teammates, which, okay, that happens for sure. But it seems like there's something different about the way he is and the way he interacts with his teammates. Um, and it's clear right now, I mean, the guy is, the last 10 games, he's shooting less than 40% from the field, 12% uh, from three-point land, averaging less than 10 points. So um, they were, Indiana was wise to not re-sign and pay him a lot of money and get, get tied up with that. Um, I think that they were, they dodged a bullet there, and I think Charlotte's now realizing that they're now stuck with this. And I don't think he's got any value. I think no, everyone's starting to realize, even the whole thing with the blowing in the ear with uh, LeBron. Um, you know, he was acting up that whole series. And I, I, to me, that meant that he knew he was gone. He knew he was leaving Indiana, didn't really want him as much as they, 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 he thought they did. Uh, I've seen players like that completely lose, the, lose their um, SHIT in that situation when they know, oh, I'm gone, there's no reason to behave anymore. And uh, that's the kind of stuff where, you know, I would want to stay as far away as I could as a coach. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough. I mean, he's he's a a really prime example of a player that is just so risk reward. I, I thought I saw risk reward up close watching Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Jr. Jr. Between Jr. and Lance, the off the court stuff they've obviously each had. I think probably one really serious off the court issue before Lance had a domestic violence sort of thing. I think come up and Jr. Really early in his career in Denver. Um, was driving a car and then his friend got killed when they got into a crash. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, but th- that's kind of further removed. But just the, the on-court stuff is generally, like, playful and silly, but it's something that a, a, a really serious team would get annoyed with, um, just as they do with the, the constant flopping that Lance has um, and, and JR and the shoelaces and stuff. It, but it's tough. JR is 30. And so it's like there's a part where you look at JR and you're like, you've just got to stop doing that. With Lance, he's not a kid, but he's only what is he like twenty two, twenty three? Twenty four. That, that was the that's the real challenge with him is that like if some if somebody could get through to him to where you get a serious version of Lance where he kind of cuts the clown act a little bit, he's still so young that like he really theoretically should not be anywhere near his ceiling yet. Mm-hmm. He's still I mean he's not even in his prime yet. He shouldn't be, at least. And we've already seen him play. I mean it's so rare to get guys that can play both offense and defense that can create their own shot and lock down someone. He's not a lockdown defender, but he's good enough. And he's, he, he can be a good passer. I think last year he led the league in triple doubles. He, he, he's got so much talent, but, yeah, it's always going to be a question about the character and, and whether or not, once he gets paid, whether you can get him to really behave. Yeah, and, and, and any player is, is uh, coachable. If you can figure out the way to communicate, I, I believe there isn't a player on the planet that that some coach can't figure out how to get in there and figure out how to get them, you know, to play better uh, or play or to maximize what they do. And certainly, you know, some, someone out there could probably do it with Lance. It just hasn't really quite happened yet. Ooh, yeah. uh, but his fundamentals are also way off, and that was always what kind of gave me a big red flag as far as balance and footwork. And they just were sort of a very unpolished for a guard, which is usually concerning to me. Um, but we'll, we'll have to see what happens. It's an interesting story uh, all around. And, uh, you know, I want to thank you, Chris, for coming on the show and giving us some terrific stuff. Uh, you know, you have to come back. We do this, let's do this again. It sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. It's always good to chat with you. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything! This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win $25,000. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants. Participating stores.